0: Join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices Podium, Dr. Chris Lowe. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. See if I can get this going. So, what I'm going to talk about today is something uh, it's based on a project that I started with my students about 10 years ago. And, And what happened as I was working on this project is I began to realize that. I had a very skewed view of how I was doing my science and in fact it made me think more about how we do science in general so hopefully this message will kind of come through tonight and, and, and people tell me it's actually an, a bit of an uplifting message which is kind of unusual these days right so one of the things we hear all the time on the news is usually bad news right so we hear about all the bad things that are happening to our environment and, and quite often We think that those things are only happening today. Well, those of us that have been around for a while know that this message has been going on for a long time. And it actually gets kind of discouraging day in, day out, where all we hear is bad news. So the problem really comes from us. We have a growing problem. The planet has had a growing problem with a number of people growing on the planet. And and quite often, because we live in California, it's important that we think about California the same way. California is a growing problem as well. So California human population has been increasing exponentially. We're now up around uh, 38 million people. And what's really cool and interesting about California is a vast majority of them live within 60 miles of the coastline. So we have had very important direct and severe impacts on the marine environment as our population has grown. Um, Many of you that have lived in California a long time are very familiar with the hazy days of California. We actually had some of the worst air pollution back in the 40s. In fact, there were regular warnings about not going outside, not exercising outside because of the air quality. So back in the 40s is when we actually had the worst air quality, and those of you that have lived in Southern California a long time know what that looks like. Um, But it was really a number of concerned citizens that pushed hard for changes. Changes because we saw the problems with our air quality. It wasn't just California. It was many other places in the nation. And it, but it was concerned citizens from California that helped drive the Clean Air Act that was passed in 1970. So interestingly enough, now we have five times more people in California than we did in the 40s. And we have 28 times more cars, but yet we have cleaner air now than we did back in the 40s. So remember, everything that we put into the atmosphere ultimately ends up in the ocean, is going to have impacts on the ocean. So the fact that we had really bad air quality and now we've done something to clean it up is is a good sign, right? Now, the ocean is no different. Remember I told you a bulk of our human population live within 60 miles of the coastline. And generally, every time we flush the toilet, that water eventually gets discharged offshore. So, as a result, we've had issues, historic issues in California, about having very poor water quality along our coastal habitats. So, um, up into the 70s, we were literally discharging primary treated sewage up to a mile offshore, and as a result, our water quality was very poor. We had high nutrification of our coastlines. and It had dramatic impacts on many of our coastal communities, particularly organisms. In addition, we have a lot of industry in Southern California, and they were discharging contaminants directly into the environment. So, for example, off Palos Verdes, we have one of the largest DDT dumping grounds, where over a hundred tons of industrial contaminants were discharged offshore. It was one of the first and largest Superfund sites on the West Coast. And of course, Californians rallied again with many other Americans to say, this is unacceptable, we have to do something to clean up water quality, and they were instrumental in passing the Clean Water Act in 1972. Now, as a result, All of Southern California, when you think about it, 22 million people all living within 60 miles of the coastline, all going to the bathroom every day. As a result, we have cleaner water now than we did back in the 70s. We have complete secondary treatment throughout Southern California, and in some cases, tertiary treatment. And as many of you know, it won't be long soon before we go toilet to tap. So part of that is an important part of water conservation, but the other part is it's been instrumental in helping us clean up water quality in our coastal waters. We still have problems with urban runoff and we still have problems with trash and things like that getting into the ocean but the point is we recognize we had water quality problems and we did something about it 40 years ago so california is also really unique in that we come from a community of seafood lovers in fact california's early economy was based on commercial fishing so as a result of a hundred years of commercial impacts and recreational impacts we've seen dramatic changes in many of California's fish species. And it's had major impacts on our economy over time. So for example, I'm just going to talk about some of the fisheries that have occurred in Southern California. So the seine fishery originally started in 1915. And it was targeting things like tuna, barracuda, white sea bass, what we call wet fish, which are bait, which people also eat, so sardines, anchovies, things like that. Most of those fisheries are gone. They're almost all gone. All those commercial seine fisheries that were targeting those populations, we had major canneries in San Pedro and San Diego, those have all closed up. All those fisheries are gone. The largest seine fishery still in existence in California targets market squid. In fact, it's the largest commercial fishery in California. We also had trawling in California. So, otter trawls are trawls that you drag along the bottom there aren't many places along the West Coast where you have suitable habitat for doing that, but Southern California has an extended shelf with sand, so Southern California had quite a bit of trawling going on. And I uh, was targeting things like flatfishes, halibut soles, whiting, and eventually we figured out how to put wheels on the trawls so we could drag them over rock, and then we were targeting rockfish. Now most of the commercial trawlers in Southern California that were targeting things like California halibut are gone. There are six boats left in the fleet, There are only three places in Southern California where they can still trawl. So that commercial fishery is pretty much gone. Entangle nets. So entangle nets, also called trammel or gill nets, are basically a net that you put into the water that becomes invisible, fish swim into it, and they get caught around the gills. That's why they're called gill nets. This fishery grew very rapidly. It actually started in the 40s, but the problem was the net they were using was made out of cotton or other materials that were visible to the fish. But it wasn't until the advent of plastic in the 1970s that we developed monofilament gillnets. When you put that net in the water, it becomes invisible. Now, this industry exploded in California. The gillnet fishery was targeting offshore, targeting species like uh, swordfish, thresher sharks, mako sharks. And inshore, they were targeting things like halibut, angel sharks, and white sea bass. Now, because of problems of bycatch in coastal waters got so bad, that the state of California voters voted to ban the use of gill nets in nearshore waters in 1994. So this fishery literally grew and crashed in a period of 15 years. We've had a number of hook and line fisheries in Southern California, ranging from long lines. This is where you put out a line uh, with a bunch of hooks on it, and then you pull that line up and hopefully have a bunch of fish. Most of the commercial long line fisheries are gone that used to exist in California. They've moved to other waters. Uh, They've been replaced by recreational hooks. So it's estimated that we have over a million recreational anglers that fish in Southern California waters alone, a million anglers. So the bottom line is, we have a history of taking too much. And that history goes back well over 100 years in California. So we had problems uh, of major over-harvesting and hunting of marine mammals. Those were virtually hunted to the verge of extinction back up until 1920, uh, 1930. Um, We had dirty fisheries, where even though these Populations were being protected. They were still bycatching commercial fisheries. So we had problems with bycatch. And generally, we had a systematic loss of marine predators. So humans, by and large, like to go for the biggest and the best. We have have a, a penchant for predator flesh when it comes to fish. The ones that taste best to us tend to reside higher in the food web. So we have systematically eliminated many of those, either directly by harvesting them or indirectly as bycatch in other fisheries. So it wasn't that we didn't recognize these problems decades ago. In fact, in 1973, the Marine Mammal Protection Act was passed because we saw what was happening to whales and marine mammals throughout US waters. Uh, of course, we banned the use of gill nets in 1994 in California. The Magnuson-Stevens Act, which is the federal act that requires that we manage our fisheries in federal waters, was first passed in 1976, recertified in 1996, and one of the major focuses in 96 was reducing commercial fishery bycatch. And then, of course, Californians being very good environmental stewards passed the California Marine Life Protection Act in 1999, which has a whole series of policies and regulations in them to help restore some of the fisheries that we know have been overfished for several decades now. So it's not that we haven't recognized these problems for a very long time. So the challenge that we have is, we have basically systematically removed many of the top predators. And even if we didn't remove them, we've removed key prey that we've foraged on, and therefore have taken away the important prey for them. So many of the predators didn't have sufficient resources and have left Southern California waters. So the bottom line is, When we see a loss of predators, we know that this creates a food web that's out of whack. And We've probably had a food web that's been out of whack in California for about 100 years now. So humans, basically, we start at the top, but we basically feed our way through the food web. We feed at all levels now. So while we get more bang for the buck feeding at the higher levels, we have worked our way down to much lower trophic levels. So I want to talk about this gillnet fishery again, because it's a really important one. And I think it's one that that one regulation of banning the use of nearshore gillnets, I think, has been really pivotal in seeing important recovery in many of our predators in California waters. So there were two gillnet fisheries. There was an offshore drift gillnet fishery. And basically what they do is go offshore, set the net at night, let it drift, and animals would swim into it, and they'd get tangled, and they'd pull it in. There was also a nearshore set and drift gillnet fishery that was targeting things like halibut, white sea bass. And this was literally, some of these nets were set from the shoreline out offshore to intercept animals as they made their coastal migrations. So this fishery grew literally within 10 years. It overcapitalized. There were 1,000 permits issued to boats in Southern California alone. And the great thing about this fishery was you didn't need a big, long net to do it. You didn't need a big boat. You could do it out of a 28-foot boat. So it grew very, very rapidly. What we saw, fishery managers saw, were a rapid reduction in the target species. So all these species listed here, within less than a 10-year period, we saw a rapid decline in catch rates. But what really cooked this fishery was bycatch. It was when the California public were seeing dead whales, dead dolphins, dead sea lions, dead turtles in the nets, that that was enough. It wasn't declining target catch that really put the kibosh on that fishery. It was the public seeing animals caught as bycatch that really did it. So this was a major game changer, I would argue, in California. So this is an idea of how this fishery changed over time. So this indicates the number of nets set per year since that fishery started in the late 70s, early 80s. So we can see in the offshore gill net fishery, they both peak in the mid-80s, and then they rapidly decline. So part of that decline is the fact that there are so many fishers competing for so few fish now that many of the boats couldn't compete. And they started getting out of the fishery. In addition, managers were recognizing the problem and began to regulate the fishery. So, at its peak, over 1,000 uh, permits were issued for the nearshore gillnet fishery, 1,000 boats in Southern California alone. So, the nearshore gillnet ban goes into place in 1994, and since then, we can see that gillnet fishing effort has been fairly stable. So, remember, there's still gillnet fishing occurring in California, they just can't fish within three miles of the coastline inside state waters. So now in the offshore drift gillnet net fishery, there are only 16 vessels left. And the belief is that probably in the next two years, that fishery will be gone. For the nearshore fishery, there are 140 permits, but only 40 boats still fishing. So those boats are actually still harvesting things like white sea bass. So since its peak in, in the mid 1980s till now, there's been an 82% reduction in that fishery. I mean, it grew rapidly and it crashed. So if we look at where gill net fishing was occurring, I mean, it, it occurred all throughout Southern California. These are what we call Department of Fish and Game fishing blocks. They're 10 nautical miles by 10 nautical miles. And this is only information that fishers had to give as to where they were fishing. So they didn't have to disclose their secret fishing spot. They just had to say somewhere within one of these blocks. So what you can see is that there's a lot of fishing effort occurring along the coast. This gray line you see right there indicates state waters. So back prior to 1994, gill nets were being set all along the coastline and also in offshore waters. So this was a big fishery. It, It grew and closed really quickly. So since it's banned, believe it or not, there are signs that things that were being targeted in that fishery, like white sea bass, are coming back. So if we look at some of the historic data, some of the historic landings going back to the 50s, some of the record landings for white sea bass back then, and then the numbers come way down, and then during this period when the gillnet fishery is fishing the heaviest, they basically fish them out. gillnet ban goes into place in 1994, and since then we've seen it steadily rising. So just this one management practice has done a lot for bringing back a species that was heavily targeted in that fishery. But what about species that weren't targeted in that fishery? These are bycatch species, so species like giant sea bass. Things like soupfin sharks, leopard sharks, were all caught as bycatch in that commercial gillnet fishery. And since it's ban, we've seen basically all these populations steadily increase. These are not just based on fishing data. These are based on diver observation, scientific survey data. So all these populations were clearly heavily impacted by this fishery. But since the banning of nearshore gillnets, all these populations seem to be showing signs of recovery. Now, this one is probably one of the uh, marine mammals in general have shown some of the most remarkable recoveries that I think we can see in any marine animal that has been impacted in some way. So California sea lions were heavily impacted in the gillnet fishery as well. That was one of the main reasons why the gillnet ban was proposed. But if we look at, at the population of California sea lions. So back up into 1920, if fishermen saw sea lions, they simply shot them. Many people didn't know, but there used to be a barge in LA Harbor. That was where they would take California sea lions that fishermen shot, that they would grind up and turn into pet food. So California sea lions were viewed as competitors. They were a a nuisance that had to be ridden. So as of 1920, beach count estimates estimated that there were as few as 2,000 California sea lions left in all of California and Baja. So by 1920, marine mammal biologists thought California sea lion had been hunted to the verge of extinction. So what happens in 1973? The Marine Mammal Protection Act goes into place where it is now illegal to shoot a sea lion, or illegal to capture one and kill one. So we see the population rapidly start to grow. But we see this little dent right here in the mid-'80s. Anybody know what happened in the early-'80s? El Nino. A big, strong El Nino hit at that time period, and it really put a hurting on the California sea lion. Guess what we just came out of? A strong El Nino. And it's doing the exact same thing. But the thing that I find most stark is in the mid-'90s, this is when the gill net ban goes into place, the Magnuson-Stevens Act really clamps down on commercial fishery bycatch, And since then, we see an unbelievable rise in California sea lions. So it's not just sea lions. It's northern elephant seals. It's harbor seals. It's dolphins. It's whales. All these populations show these exact same trajectories. The thing that I find most amazing is in the mid-1990s, this is the point where we're telling the public, our coastal waters are completely overfished. There's nothing left. This is the biggest carnivore in our coastal ocean. These things eat fish every single day. So how are their populations growing at a rate of 6.5% per year if there's nothing out there for them to eat? It doesn't make sense. So now, in 2012, NOAA concluded that the California sea lion population had reached its carrying capacity at somewhere between 320 and 470,000 animals. So in a period of less than 100 years, this population has gone from what we thought was the verge of extinction to full recovery. Some paleontologists even argue that it, it's possible that there are more California sea lions on the planet now than there have ever been. So I look at this and go, this is pretty remarkable. Many of you are probably going, when is he going to talk about sharks? <laughs> OK, so what do big things like white sharks like to eat? They like to eat these, right? So let's talk about the animal at the top of the heap. Let's talk about white sharks. So white sharks are one of the more important apex predators that we have in our coastal oceans. And I'm I'm not slighting the marine mammals, because orca actually can take out white sharks. So they are really at the tippity top. But if you look at what we've learned about white sharks in the last 20 years. So 20 years ago, if you asked a shark biologist what kind of shark we thought a white shark was, we would have said white sharks are coastal sharks. And if you'd asked, well, how do you know that? We would say, well, in the fall months around places like the Fairlands, Indian Nuevo, we see them along the shoreline. So the reason for that is those animals are coming in for easy meals. This is when things like northern elephant seals, California sea lions, are coming to these areas. They're hauling out. They're giving birth to their young. They wean their young. The adults take off, and they go off to the middle of the North Pacific. And then those big, fat, California sea lions and northern elephant seals have to figure out how to make it on their own. Those white sharks are hanging around these coastal areas, and they're feeding on them because they're easy prey. They're naive, and they're a high-quality fatty prey, like those good, buttery-rich donuts, you know, or the, or the brownies, right? The good stuff. So, but what we found is that white sharks basically are very vulnerable to overfishing because they have life histories much like us. So they take anywhere from nine to 12 years to reach sexual maturity. Females may only reproduce every three years. They'll give birth to anywhere from two to 14 pups. The pups are about five feet long at birth. They can live possibly as as old as 70 years old. So you cannot put a lot of fishing pressure on a population like this without quickly fishing them down. And of course, they're of value. So things like the jaws can sell for as much as $16,000 for a pair of adult white shark jaws. The fins of adult white shark can sell for as much as $200 a pound. Now, historically, there's never been a commercial fishery for white sharks because they don't exist in high numbers. They've never existed in high numbers. However, they have been incidentally caught as bycatch in in commercial fisheries. And when they have been caught, they have been harvested, and whatever parts that are available have been sold. In fact, in California, there's a good chance that if you ate quote-unquote shark from a fish market, uh, prior to 1994, you ate white shark, and you didn't even know it. So, um, what, what I do find really amazing is in California, in the same year that we passed the Nearshore Gillnet Ban, California passed legislation to protect white sharks in California waters, which mean it was illegal for fishermen to, to target and catch and land a white shark. The thing that I find most interesting about this is white sharks kind of have a reputation for occasionally nibbling on people. So, despite that reputation, we still had the wherewithal to protect an animal that in other parts of the world they're trying to get rid of because they perceive them as a threat to people. So we recognize the importance of this animal in our coastal ocean, enough so to protect them. They were protected in 1997 throughout the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. They were protected under CITES so their parts could not be traded internationally in 2004. In 2005, they were protected throughout the rest of US waters. They have been protected in South Africa, Australia, Mexico, New Zealand for at least 20 years. So in all these locations, white sharks have been afforded protection because we recognize their importance, but their vulnerability to overfishing. Okay, so we thought white sharks were coastal sharks until we started to tag them. So my colleagues at Stanford and Monterey Bay Aquarium and at various institutions in Mexico started putting things called satellite transmitters on white sharks that they would see around those islands and those locations in the fall months, and what we found was They hang around these areas during the fall, but in the winter they migrate all the way out to the middle of the Pacific, or to Hawaii, we'll we'll spend anywhere from eight months to a year and a half out there before venturing back to one of these aggregation sites. So literally in a matter of like two years of using this technology, we went from thinking of white sharks as being coastal sharks to they're not coastal sharks at all, they're oceanic sharks. So that greatly changed our understanding of the ecology of white sharks. One of the other things that we've learned is that our front yard is actually a nursery for white sharks in the the uh, Northeast Pacific. We know that because in the summer months, it's not uncommon for people to catch baby white sharks right off our ocean piers. In fact, we found records of fishermen catching white sharks off the beaches in Southern California dating back to 1880, 1890. So based on this, This is the smallest white sharks you can possibly catch. That's a neonate. That's probably about five feet long at birth. Um, We estimate that Southern California is a nursery for white sharks in the Northeast Pacific. So one of the things we wanted to look at is what impacts have commercial fishing had on white sharks um, in Southern California? So we combed through a bunch of logbook records in the gillnet fishery and, and tagging records and scientific collection records. And we found that from 1936 to 2009, there were 369 records of white sharks being caught in some fishery in California. So when we dug into those records a bit more, not surprisingly, we found that for the individuals where there was length information, a vast majority of the sharks caught in any commercial fishery or recreational fishery in California were babies. So these are sharks less than six feet long. There are uh, quite a few juveniles, but very few adults. So when we looked at the records to find out what fishery had the greatest interaction with white sharks, this started to make sense. So when we look at all the commercial fisheries, the fishery that had the greatest degree of interaction were the gillnet fishery. Remember that fishery started in the late 70s, kind of went through to you know, kind of the mid-90s before it was heavily regulated. A vast majority of the individuals caught in that fishery were babies, mainly because, uh, and we talked to fishermen, and they'd say, oh, I pulled my nets in today, and man, there was a massive hole in my net. You could drive a Volkswagen through it. And i go, I think I know what made that hole. Um, Adult white sharks blow right through gillnet, like it's nothing, like it's thread. Um, But some of these other techniques, like harpoons, obviously you can get bigger sharks. Interestingly enough, um, one shark was caught, baby white shark was caught, with its head stuck in a lobster trap. Um, In addition, the next most frequently um, fishery that interacts with white sharks the most was, was recreational fishing, hook and line fishing. And again, this comes back to fishers accidentally catching these sharks off piers or off beaches and things like that. So, but obviously, this gillnet fishery had had major impacts on the white shark population, particularly the babies. So when we look at the locations of where sharks were reported caught throughout Southern California, these are adults, these are sharks um, over, uh, almost over 12 feet, and we can see that the primary hotspots are off Catalina, off Palos Verdes, off Ventura, and there weren't very many caught because, frankly, there aren't very many commercial fisheries that can actually stop an adult white shark. When we look at juveniles, we see uh, this pattern of more along the coastline, but it's really when we look at the babies that we see this pattern, where most of the babies were being caught in these coastal blocks. So there appear to be hotspots off Ventura in Santa Barbara, off Santa Monica Bay, off Huntington Beach, and then down off San Diego. So this is just based on fishing records. So remember, fishing is kind of biased. Fishers fish where they think they're gonna get the most fish, so they're not fishing equally around. So we have to be careful about how we use this information to figure out where baby white sharks go. So one of the interesting trends that we saw over the time that we did this work, and I did not believe, because of many of the things that I started this talk talking about, shark populations are overfished, everything's gone, everything's bad, nothing can get better. So when we look at this record, here are the fishing efforts for the different gill nets. We see the number of sharks being reported landing in these fisheries increase, and they reach the peak, and then they start to go down. So it's probably clear, remember, up to this point, all these sharks that are caught in the fishery were landed. They were sold in fish markets as shark. It was perfectly legal to land white shark. And it's perfectly edible. It tastes like mako or thresher. But after 1994, white sharks were protected, and gillnets were banned in nearshore waters. Gillnet effort hasn't changed. It's been fairly stable. Look what happened to the number of baby white sharks being incidentally caught in the remaining gill net fishery outside three miles. These numbers have been steadily increasing over time. So I looked at this and I thought, can't be, can't be. Can't be the populations increasing. We're telling people that shark populations, everything's overfished. How is this possible? But but you can't have more babies without having more mommies. And the lifespan of a white shark is about 12 years. And that kind of matches this pattern that we're seeing in terms of protection and changes in many of our commercial fisheries that probably had pretty significant impacts on white sharks. So what we've been doing for the last probably eight to 10 years is actually working with many of the commercial fishermen. If they caught a a shark in their gill nets, they would call us up. My students and I would meet them down the dock. And here is a white shark in a fish tote. This is four feet by four feet. These are legal sized California halibut. They'd put the shark in the tote, they'd call us up, they'd bring it back to the dock. My students and I would meet them there. We would take tissue samples, blood samples for genetic analysis. We'd fit them with a variety of transmitters. And then we'd take them offshore and let them go. Now by doing this, we had two questions we wanted to answer. Number one, can a shark caught in a gill net that could have been in that net overnight, stuck in this tote, brought all the way back to the dock, poked and prodded by a bunch of scientists, then taken out and released, could it survive that? And then if it does survive, where do they go? So to answer these questions, we used a variety of technologies. So one tool that we used are called satellite transmitters. Satellite transmitters rely on radio transmission, which does not penetrate well through seawater. So the only way you can send a satellite signal is the antenna has to be in air. So one type of transmitter we used are called spot tags. These actually get bolted to the shark's dorsal fin. And every time the fin breaks a surface, the transmitter starts pulsing, sending a signal to the satellites, which then send me an email to my desk saying, Shark number 205 just popped off, and here's the latitude and longitude. When the shark goes back underwater, the transmitter stops transmitting. So every time it pops up, I can get a latitude and longitude for the shark. Now, these things are not marine mammals. They do not have to come to the surface to breathe. So when we first started putting these very expensive transmitters on these sharks, we thought, hmm, how many positions would we actually get? So the other tool we used are what are called pop-off archiving satellite tags. These have a pressure sensor, a depth sensor, and a light sensor. And they're constantly recording and storing those data. We can then program this tag, which is stuck into the outside of the shark. Think of it like an earring. It's trailing behind. We can program this at a pre time to pop off, float to the surface, and then it disgorges all its information to in the satellite and then sends it to me at my desk. So then we can then use that information to not only look at the depth and the temperature, but get some rough estimate of the geolocation of the shark as it moved. So the problem is that isn't very accurate. The positional accuracy of those are maybe 60 nautical miles. So if a shark's very close to the shoreline, sometimes it would put it in Englewood. So so we have to be careful how we use that technology to answer really fine-scale questions. So to do that, we used a third technology. These are called acoustic transmitters. Now, acoustic sounds travel fairly well through water. Each transmitter that we put in the shark had a battery life of up to 10 years. Each transmitter had a unique ID code. Then we had all these acoustic receivers, underwater receivers, all along the coastline. In fact, many of our ocean piers have one of these receivers on them. So when a shark swims within maybe 500 meters of one of these receivers, the receiver logs the ID, the time and the date that it came by. So think of it like easy pass for sharks, right? So every time they swim by, we can get a record of when they came by, and we can tell how close they are to the shore. So by combining all these technologies, in fact, some of the sharks had all three. We could use that to answer questions about number one, do they survive if they're caught in the net? Number two, where do they go if they do survive? So, this is a map. The red squares indicate where most of the gillnet fishing occurs. Now, it's kind of uh, artificial in that anything inside this, this gray line, there's no gillnet fishing. The positions you see, these symbols, are locations where gillnet fishers had caught one of the sharks that we get to tag. So, when you look at this map, you go, ooh, this is not good. They're fishing in places. They're catching sharks in places where they fish all the time. But it's an artifact. That's why they caught them there, right? Now, what if we use those spot tags when the shark pops to the surface and we get an actual latitude and longitude, and we ask, where are the sharks when, when the fishers aren't out there or when they're not catching them? So when we look at that, we see a very different distribution. So the white dots that you see are detections that we got inside three miles. That means there's no gillnet fishing allowed there. They're virtually protected in those waters. The black dots you see are, are positions that we got where they're vulnerable to the fishing. So a few things to point out. Please note that there aren't huge numbers of dots inside this, black dots inside these red squares. So the sharks aren't spending all their time in the places where the fishers are fishing the most. But there is some potential interaction. The other thing that's really interesting is that we tagged, you probably noticed, we tagged most of the sharks up here in Ventura. But if you notice, where they spend most of their time is in Santa Monica Bay, where commercial fishing, certain types of commercial fishing aren't allowed. So one of the things that we noticed over eight or 10 years of working with a commercial fisherman was that some years, they would have a lot of dead sharks in their nets, and other years, they wouldn't. So um, we, we tried to develop a good relationship with the fishers so that we could use this information to help them develop a cleaner fishery. So one of the things we started to ask them, well, what happens when the sharks are dead in the net? How are you fishing? So one of the things that we started to find was that if a shark was live in the net, chances are they checked the net in less than 24 hours from the time they set it. However, if they let their nets out for more than two days, 40 hours plus, there was a very high likelihood that a shark would be found dead in the net. So if the fishermen want to reduce mortality on sharks because they're a protected species, they just need to check their nets more frequently. And we know that works because these live sharks 94% survived after they had them in the net, they brought them all the way back, we put all these tags in and we let them go. 94% survived. So by using this information, fishers can change their behavior to reduce mortality in white sharks. And when, believe it or not, when you ask a fisherman why they should do that, you know, because they're like, why do we care about white sharks? I say, "Um, how do you like sea lions? And they're like, oh, I hate sea lions. And I go, well, the white sharks can help you with that. So one of the things that we found um, is that our satellite tag data give us kind of accurate information. But you know there's nothing better than direct observation, right? So here's an aerial photograph. PCH, this is Will Rogers Beach, right here. It's just literally off screen. These are two stand-up paddleboarders. How many white sharks you see? That's kelp. So in an area the size of a football field, It is not uncommon to have a dozen of these baby white sharks just cruising around just outside the wave break. And for many of you that have been in Southern California the last few summers, you know this makes daily news, right? Oh my God, there's sharks off the beach, what's going on? So, um, but these are all baby, young of the year white sharks. So, in addition, we wanna answer the question, what makes those locations that the fishery, you know, like off Ventura, off Santa Monica Bay, Huntington Beach, what makes these hot spots? So to answer these questions, we needed additional tools. So um, we can't always rely on the commercial fishermen to catch sharks for us, so we had to use it, our own methods to try to catch them. This is, the, this is the expensive way. Expensive way is we hire a spotter plane or a helicopter to spot the sharks, then we hire a commercial purse to set the net around the shark. We can purse the net up, we can take the shark out, and then we can do all the same things we do when we get a shark from a commercial fisherman. The only difference is that costs us about $5,000 a day. The other problem was we're not allowed to use this approach within 900 feet of a beach. The problem was most of the sharks that the pilots were seeing were literally 200 feet off the beach. So we needed a new technique for tagging these sharks. So this one was really fun. So what we did was we worked with the local lifeguards who were trying to deal with this shark issue and how to advise the public. So by using the lifeguards, they would be on a a jet ski. They'd have a tow board. I'd stick one of my grad students on the back of the tow board. We would have, and by the way, they'd fight over that opportunity. They fought over it. So then we would have either a helicopter or a drone spotting telling the, the jet ski operator where the shark was. They would drive up in front of the shark. The student would roll in the water. As the shark would swim by, they would quickly dart a transmitter into their back. So then we could actually, and the sharks would just kind of keep hanging around, so we could tag them even though they were very close to the shore. In fact, sometimes my students were in such shallow water that after they tagged the shark, they would stand up, and you could see you know, from the knees up. So these sharks are in really shallow water. So now, in order to use this technique, so these are acoustic transmitters, in order to use this technique, we needed listening stations all along the coast. So in Southern California, we have over 100 a, a Acoustic receivers throughout Santa Monica Bay, around the Channel Islands, um, all throughout Orange County. And then my colleagues, Mexican colleagues, ha- are doing the same thing. There's another white shark nursery down here in an area called Viscayano Bay. And they have another series of acoustic receivers here. So by using these receivers, we can look at how much time sharks are spending at certain beaches and, and do they migrate? So this is what we call an abacus spot. Each one of these is a white shark that we've tagged over time. These little dash marks indicate days that they were detected. The black dashes indicate detections in Southern California. So you can see sharks are detected primarily during the summer months, and then during the winter we don't hear from them. Maybe the next summer they come back and we hear from them again and again. These red dashes you see were sharks that were tagged in Southern California during the summer. They spent all summer here. And then in the winter they migrated all the way down to Viscayano Bay and went in Scammon's Lagoon. Scammon's Lagoon where the gray whales go and breed in the winter. So these little sharks overwintered in Scammon's Lagoon, and then the next spring, some of those sharks came back to Southern California. So by using this technique, we can begin to understand not only how close to shore these animals are, the habitats they're using, but their migratory patterns. Um, If you go to this scatton.org, is a website that we have where you can actually see tracks of juvenile white sharks that we've tagged in Southern California. So basically, what you would see here are flashing lights would indicate detections of these sharks as they moved, Uh, along the coastline during 2015. Now 2015 was an interesting summer for us because it it was followed by a non-winter. Because of the El Nino, we didn't have winter. So normally in past summers, our sharks would be around all summer long at a particular beach. And then what would happen is November and December when our water temperatures would cool off, they would make a rapid migration down to Baja. And then they would overwinter there. Our satellite transmitters also confirm this migration, right? So we had sharks that we tagged up here, spent all summer long along our beaches, and then in November, December, when our water temperatures started to cool off, these sharks booked it south for Baja. So here we have a shark that we tagged off Ventura with a spot tag. And these dark circles you see are detections that we got when the shark broke the surface, right? So during the summer, it's up here off these beaches, makes this migration down to Viscayano Bay. This is a pat tag that we put on the shark, relative to sea surface temperature. What happens is as the water temperature starts to change, you can actually see the shark following that temperature pattern down uh, to Viscano Bay. Um, This was a shark that was caught in Southern California by Monterey Bay Aquarium, who is our, our, our funder for this project. The shark was taken all the way up to Monterey, kept on exhibit, and released in February. The reason why they released that shark was because it gained 100 pounds in six months, no, four months. And it started eating its tank mates. So so what they did was they released it in Monterey in February. By the way, the water's pretty cool at that time of year. There's a video that would show that shark, I mean, literally booking it from Monterey all the way down to Mazatlan. The warm water, it hit Mazatlan. It's like, oh, finally it's warm. And it hung around Mazatlan for probably about three or four weeks. And then a, a slug of warm water started coming up in the spring, and it pushed it all the way up into the gulf. So it made its way all the way up to about Laredo. And then what happened was the sea surface temperature got so warm that we saw the shark, based on the satellite tag, go deep. And it started spending all its time at about 300 feet. So the sea surface temperature got too warm for that animal. So this became really kind of important information. OK, so one of the things that we found, based on the tracks that we did, was that there appeared to be a very narrow temperature range that was influencing these sharks. So they like water temperatures probably between about 75 degrees and as cool as probably 60 degrees, maybe 58 degrees. If it got below 58 degrees, they didn't like it and they booked it south. Now this is kind of interesting because white sharks are endothermic. So basically, as long as they keep swimming, they can make their bodies warmer than the water. They have all the same equipment as the adults. So an adult white shark can venture all the way into Alaska waters. They can keep their bodies 15 to 25 degrees warmer than the water that they swim through as long as they're swimming. Now the babies have all the same equipment, but they're too small to keep the heat. They lack the thermal inertia to keep the heat. So what happens is, in the winter, during our normal winters, when the water gets below 60 degrees, they migrate south and they hug the coast. Where they end up in Baja, their water temperature at that time in winter is equivalent to our summer water temperatures. So using this information, one of my grad students developed a model, a spatial model, to predict where you'd expect to find juvenile white sharks. And what he did was he ran this model for 10 years, pre-El Nino, El Nino, and post-El Nino. So what you're looking at is a probability map. So the red indicates uh, highest probability. And what you'll do is this is a date uh, date counter. So what you'll see is in the winter, Southern California waters back in 2003 are too cold. So as we get into the summer, the waters warm up. Now we see high probabilities of seeing those sharks, right? But in the winter, it gets too cold, and we see that that area moves south and all the way down into the Gulf. So remember, we generated this spatial model based on the actual tracking data that we gathered and the temperature data that we gathered from the sharks. So the sharks are telling us what conditions they're looking for. What was really interesting was in 2014 and 2015, during that strong El Nino, we didn't have winter. And the model predicted that sharks wouldn't leave Southern California. And in fact, in Vizcayano Bay in the summer, it actually got too warm for sharks there. And my colleagues who were working there noticed in 2014 and 2015, they saw very few juvenile white sharks in Vizcayano Bay. Most of the animals we saw were up here in Southern California. The other interesting thing is, prior to this last El Nino, it was rare to ever hear about a juvenile white shark north of Point Conception. California current sweeps along here bringing cool water. During that El Nino, strong El Nino, we had juvenile white sharks all the way up to Monterey, Santa Cruz. So this model actually did a really good job at predicting where you should expect to see these sharks based on the environmental conditions that they told us they liked based on the movements. So one of the questions we wanna ask is um, how are these sharks using these beaches? What makes certain beaches so special? So to do this, we need finer-scale tools. So uh, I partnered with a roboticist and computer scientist at Harvey Mudd. And what we did was we got a grant from National Science Foundation to create shark-tracking autonomous robots. So basically, there's a kind of off-your-shelf oceanographic AUV, autonomous underwater vehicle, that we equip with a pair of ears. So these ears are listening for a transmitter on the shark. It can determine a, a bearing. And then we can estimate a distance by trilateration. We then program the robot to autonomously follow the shark and because it knows where the shark is in 3D space and time, it's determining its position. Now, because this is a standard off the shelf ocean graphic tool, we equip it with temperature sensors, light sensors, depth sensors. We program the robots to move up and down and move through the water column while it's tracking the shark. It can do something my students can't do. It can chew gum and swim at the same time. (laughs) So, So basically, this robot is characterizing the world around the shark and we're getting very high-resolution information on what the shark's doing. This is very different from what we've used this, how we've used technology in the past. Because in the past, we knew animals went from point A to point Z, but we didn't understand why. By using this really high-resolution information, we can better understand the context under which animals make decisions. So this is really a game changer in terms of new technology. We're coupling that with what we call smart tags. So these are shark backpacks. So basically what this is, is a 3D accelerometer, a depth sensor, a pressure sensor. It's got an acoustic transmitter so the robot can follow it. And it's got a a, a video camera, a video logger. So what you're seeing now is what the shark sees. So we can clamp this on the shark's dorsal fin, it'll stay on for 24 to 48 hours, and pop off, float to the surface, we can pick it up and recover it and download all the information. So based on that, we not only know how fast the shark's tail is beating, we know whether it's going up or down. We can put that in the context of the video camera, so we can basically understand why the shark is turning left based on what it sees or what it's experiencing. So by coupling that robot that's characterizing the environment, by getting really fine-scale information on what the animal's doing, we can better understand how they're using some of these coastal beaches. Are they there to feed? Are they there for safety? Are they there for warmth? In addition, you know, why limit yourself to underwater? We're using the air as well, so we're using drones. Uh, as survey tools. In fact, we're working with lifeguards to provide them with useful survey tools. So drone technology is super cheap and it's become a very powerful tool if used in the right hands, right? Um, So right now we're developing autonomous systems. They already exist. You literally click points on the map and it will go out and fly a transect at whatever altitude you set it at. We can equip them with stereo video cameras. So two cameras synchronized. We know exactly the distance apart. So when they videotape a shark from the air, we get two synchronized images. We know the distance between the two noses, and we can use that to estimate the size of the shark. So working with computer scientists, we're developing onboard software that will provide lifeguards with an estimate of how big a shark is using stereo cameras. In addition, we can use unique markings, body shapes, body outlines, and with image recognition software, we can actually get them to identify, is that a white shark, is that a leopard shark, just based on its body shape and outline. So these tools are going to be great tools. They're they're cheaper than hiring planes and helicopters. You can fly them out of the boats. um, And and we can equip all our lifeguards with those. They don't have to send a jet ski out to say, what size shark is that? Should I close the beach? They can use this to gather scientific data and use it for public safety. The other tool we're using because despite all our efforts, we can't tag every shark in coastal waters. Um, So what we're also using are underwater video cameras. We call them rubs. Basically, they're GoPros on a stick. So what we do is we take, take two GoPros, we stick them on a PVC pipe, we go outside the wave break, and we stick this thing in the sand. So the visibility's not usually that good, and my students go out all the time with their cameras trying to get video footage, and the sharks sharks aren't gonna go close to people in the water. But when we put the cameras out there and we turn them on just let them run, the sharks are actually curious of the cameras, and they'll come up and take selfies. So. <laughs> So unfortunately, if I could show you the video, I'd show you our greatest clips of you know, these baby What looks enormous, but it's a baby, it's only five feet long, coming up and get its picture taken. Then what I do is I have undergrads go back, go through the video footage, and what they can do is they can identify individuals based on unique facial markings. So using this technique, we can identify individuals that we haven't even tagged yet. And because we can do these at all the different beaches, we can ask, well, did a shark that we didn't tag at this beach actually end up at this beach? So by building a library of facial recognition fixtures, uh, we're working on developing software that will do this autonomously, which my undergrads are really excited about. So, the bottom line of my talk is this. It's taken decades, and because I, I keep asking, why, why are people asking me where all the Shrek's coming from and what's happening? I, I keep asking this question, you know, why is it so hard to recognize that a population can come back? Well, if it takes decades sometimes it's not until it's really in your face before you recognize it i think this is something that had to happen for me to see this in addition i would like to point out that the goal of the magnuson stevens act the clean water act the clean air act the marine mammal protection act wasn't to save white sharks no they were for other indirect things but as a result they've helped in bringing white sharks back and marine mammals back many of the predators That weren't just affected by overfishing or hunting, that were affected by habitat loss and pollution and all those other things. They can't come back at the rates they have if we haven't fixed some of these things. So I would argue that what we've seen in all that legislation is evidence of unintentional ecosystem management. And white sharks have just been one of the good beneficiaries of that. So I would argue you know, California condors, they get all the credit for being an endangered species trying to recover. But I would argue white shark, recovery of white sharks, is probably one of California's greatest conservation success stories. So while hopefully this leaves you with a good tingly feeling that, yay, we can do things better, um, we have new problems, we have bigger problems, and they're not necessarily regional. They're global. These are more difficult challenges, but what I hope people will realize is that When we first started looking at regional and national problems like air pollution, water pollution, overfishing, we fixed many of those. We did things to fix those. And we now have evidence that that can work. So global climate change is a real problem. It's not just our problem. But we have to do our part. So the bottom line is don't lose hope. I know it's easy to do when you see the news every day and you hear all those bad things, but if we can bring white sharks back, global warming, global climate change, no problem. Thank you.